So today we're going to start a new series, and the title of the new series is Becoming a Peacemaker. Becoming a Peacemaker. Now, it's important to not just be a peacekeeper, but to be a peacemaker, someone who creates peace, someone who is about making peace in their communities, in the church, and in their families. You know, one thing that we find, and it's very difficult for us as church members and as believers to admit, but sometimes the greatest conflicts arise within churches. Sometimes the the people who deal with conflict the worst are Christians. And it's really to the shame of Christianity that that happens. Because we have a world who is looking at us, a world who is going through difficult situations like we are. And what they're looking to see is, is, is there anything different for Christians than it is for me? Does their lives seem to be better than mine? Do they handle things differently than I do? And if they're watching and they're on the outside looking in and they see that we handle things the same way they do, or actually sometimes we handle them worse than they do, then what are they going to think about Christianity? They're going to say, I don't want that. They're going to say, I'm just fine where I'm at, what I'm doing. I mean, I certainly don't want things to be worse for me. And it's to the shame of the Christians that that happens because what we're doing is is we're mishandling the name of Jesus Christ. What we're doing is we're reflecting to our community that we really are no different, that this is kind of just like a community club, and there's really nothing real that happens here. This is just a place to hang out. When in reality, we want people to understand that church is centered around the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is active in the life of the church, lives change, things are different, people are, lives are made better. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel, is that when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we achieve the purpose for which we were created, which is to be in a relationship with God. And what our uh, announcement and our proclamation is, is that world, the reason you are hopeless, the reason that you are empty, is because you are not achieving the purpose for which you were created. You were created by a God who desires a relationship with you, and until you enter into that relationship with him, you're going to continue to feel empty and hopeless. And you're going to search for all these things that you're going to try to fill that void with, whether it's drugs or whether it's illicit relationships or whether it's addictions or whether it's gambling or whatever it may be. You're going to try to fill yourself with that, and what you're going to find is is that it destroys you and you're never fulfilled. Hey, we've got the message that changes lives. And it's that you can be in a relationship with Jesus. Jesus died for you on the cross. He rose from the dead. He did that because he took your place, your punishment, and your wrath from a holy God. He quenched the wrath of God because he is holy and perfect. And based upon his payment on the cross, if we say yes to Jesus and accept his payment for our sins, the Bible says we will be saved. Now that's the message. And that's something that we ought to be fired up about. But if we allow our conflicts... If we allow our inability to address conflict and work through conflict, if we allow these peripheral issues to cloud our vision, then what it's going to do is it's going to get us focused on different things and not the main thing, and it's going to cause people to not want what we've got. And we don't want that. We want to be a church that is singularly focused on the glory of God and the winning of souls to Jesus. So the title of my sermon today is this. It's a question. To offend or not to offend? That is our question today. So if you will, go ahead and begin turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to look in a letter written by Paul, that very same Paul that was on the road to Damascus and was dramatically changed by Jesus. He wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church 
at Corinth, which was a city in Asia Minor. Corinth was known for its idolatry. It was a Gentile city. It was a city that had uh, just overwhelmingly gross immorality. Uh, there was uh, polytheism going on there where people would worship multiple gods. They would uh, sacrifice to these idols and these gods. And this church at Corinth was a Bible-believing church, a Christian church, and they were having to live in this society. And it was very difficult for them to try to muddle through the culture that was around them and still remain faithful and true to what God had called them to be. So Paul is writing these letters to encourage them and to strengthen them. And thankfully, today we have these letters because these letters are also to us because these have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, by, by men of old who have written these through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here at Pole Creek, we believe the Word of God is infallible, which means it's perfect. There are no flaws. There are no imperfections. God's Word is perfect in its entirety. It is moral authority. It is absolute morality, and it is absolute truth that never changes. So if you will, stand to your feet as we honor the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. So Paul says this beginning in verse 23, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market, without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, Eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Let's pray. God, we entrust this time into your hands. Lord, we're thankful for the word as the word itself testifies of itself that it's sharper than any two-edged sword dividing to the very asunder of soul and spirit. Lord, we know that your word cuts to the heart. Your word changes lives. Your word is powerful. So God, as we look at your word, I pray that you would use it mightily, that we would hold it, that we would believe it, and that we would take it with us as we leave here today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing that I want us to look at here in this passage is this idea that I think a lot of us have, a lot of humanity has in general. And it's the idea of I'm going to do X, Y, Z, whatever it is, just because I can. So if you're taking notes, write that down. The first thing that I want us to look at is just because you can. Now here what Paul is saying in verse 23 is he says everything is permissible. He's saying, in other words, these things that are not directly defined in Scripture, in other words, the Scriptures do not specifically condone it or prohibit it, these things are permissible. Now, the reason we know that he's not talking about literally everything is because before, previously, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul goes through a very extensive list of things that we should not do. 
things that are sin, things that are not permissible. Some people might would look at verse 23 there and say that I can do whatever I want because everything is permissible. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you don't have to turn there, but beginning in verse 9, the Bible says this, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit the God's kingdom. So Paul in a few verses previously says this. In other words, yes, there are prohibitions in the Christian faith that we must stand on, that we must not compromise, that we say, yes, that is not permissible for a Christian to do and that is wrong and that is sinful. But here he's not talking about those things in verse 23. He's talking about those gray areas, if you will. In other words, it's a situation where some people may think it's okay some people may think it's not okay, but you can't find anywhere in the scripture that says yes or no on that subject. You can't find anywhere in the scripture that says you should not do this or you should do this. So what Paul is saying here is in those situations, we have the privilege of what is known as Christian liberty. And what Christian liberty is, is it's when our own conscience coupled with the indwelling Holy Spirit who is speaking to us guides us in whether we should do certain things or not. And then what we do is, is we have a conviction about those things, which means we come to a place, we land on that subject, and we determine whether or not that is something that we should do or something that we should not do. And that's known as Christian liberty. Now, we know there's a lot of those things in our lives that we come across. Just think about this. I know culturally in this area, I've, I was born and raised in this area. I've never lived outside of Buncombe County in my entire life. And I know that it is common uh, culture, you don't mow your grass on Sundays, all right? And I know any of you who've grown up here, and this may be in other areas too, but I know specifically in Buncombe County, you know, among Christians, you don't mow your grass on Sundays. And why that is, I'm not sure. Um, I think there is, a, there is a, a, a conflict between Sunday and Sunday being the Sabbath. And we know that in the Old Testament, it's said to rest on the Sabbath, however, uh, literally and logically, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. The Sabbath is the seventh. So they don't actually, uh, you know, coincide in that way. But if your neighbor does not want you mowing on Sunday, because that is a heartfelt, deep belief that they have and a conviction that they have, then you know what you should do? You should not mow on Sunday. But here's what some people do. They say, well, they'll get over it. And they do it just because they can. Well, why are you mowing on, just because I can? It's not illegal. The Bible doesn't say I shouldn't do it. So I'm gonna mow on Sunday and my neighbor can just get over it. Well, these are the kind of things that Paul's talking about. Here, there in verse 23, everything is permissible. Mowing your yard on Sunday is permissible, church, but not everything is beneficial. You don't have to ask the Lord to forgive you for mowing the grass on Sunday, all right? But if your neighbor is not benefited by that, and it causes them issues and turmoil, then perhaps mowing your grass on Sunday is not beneficial. It says there, second part of verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Well, you know, I did it just because I can. Just because I wanted to, and that's my freedom. And guess what? I'm gonna do it. Well, here Paul is saying that's not the right attitude to have. That's not the best attitude to have. That's not an attitude that glorifies God. We go on down in verse 24 and it elaborates just a little bit more on where Paul is going with this. In verse 24, no one is to seek his own good, 
but the good of the other person. In the first service, I said, perhaps we should tattoo that on our foreheads. Maybe then when people are talking to us, they'll see it written on our heads and we'll see it written on theirs and then we can conduct our lives as such. Seems like we forget that quite often. And I know that that is our human nature and our sinful nature pulling us to want to focus on me as opposed to you. In other words, the sinful desires of our nature want us to focus on our own well-being and our own good. And what that causes is that causes us to overlook the well-being of those we're supposed to be loving. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. I read a story not too long ago about a family, and uh, the family had five children. Of course, these children are grown now in their 40s and 50s, and their mother had just passed away. Uh, the father had passed away some years before, and the family had a home place and a farm, and uh, the, the children were going to inherit the home place and the farm. Well, of the five children, there were four men and one woman. And one of the four men was a man who was disabled. And really, he spent his entire life living in that house with his parents. He was not able to make it on his own. And even in the final days of his mother's life, he was really her, her primary caregiver. Um, and in the will, because he was disabled and wouldn't be able to provide for himself, the will had him set up a trust that his parents set up so that he could be provided for for the rest of his life. The other four children were to inherit the home place and the farm and were to divide that among themselves. So it came time that the other four children decided, you know, there's, we're going to make a lot of money off of this. We've got debt. We've got kids in college. We've got all these things going on. It's time for us to go ahead and list the house and sell it. Well, the one son who was disabled, who was still living in the house, his name was Frank. The other four siblings came to the house one day. They knocked on the door and they said, all right, Frank, you've been here long enough. It's time to go. Well, Frank flipped out. Frank freaked out. He wouldn't let him in the house. He was yelling. He was screaming. And it was just a big ordeal. Well, one of the five children was a, was a, a girl, a sister. And she had a lot of sympathy for Frank because she, she kind of felt his pain and what he was going through. Because, see, Frank had only lived in that house his whole life. His mother had just died, the woman that he had always been with ever since he was young. He was not able to live on his own. And he, he didn't feel safe outside of his home. Well, the other, four, uh, the other three brothers uh, didn't really feel that sympathy for him. And they, they said, well, you know what? This is rightfully ours. In the will, our mother and our father said they want us to have it. We're honoring our parents' wishes. You need to get out, Frank. It's time. It's done. And then in the, in the uh, background, they were even saying things like, you know, I've got so much debt to pay and, you know, I, I need this money or my kids are going to school. Is it right for me to, to shortchange my kids because Frank won't leave? Well, the sister had a good idea, and the sister decided, well, maybe we should go get counseling for this. Maybe we should go and speak to someone who might be able to read into this a little bit better and help us along the way. So they ended up being counseled by a local pastor, and uh, the four, the daughter, and the three boys went. Frank would not leave the house. So they went and they met with the pastor, and as they were telling the pastor all these things, they kept reiterating the fact that it's their right they have rights to the property, and, and, and therefore they should get the property, and, and, and therefore Frank should be kicked out. And the pastor began to talk to them and said, well, listen, have you considered what Frank is going through in this situation? Have you considered the fact that his whole world has crumbled at his feet? And now on top of that, he's being threatened of his home being taken away from him, the only home he's ever lived in. And as 
as God began to deal with the hearts of these three other brothers, God began to change their, their motives and began to change their perspective of the situation. So then several months later, uh, one of the brothers decided he was going to call a meeting for the family, and they decided to eat and have dinner. Well, he wasn't sure if Frank would come because Frank wouldn't leave the house, but albeit Frank showed up. And as Frank walked in to where they were eating, you know, he was kind of uh, cautious and had his head hung low and just because he was afraid of probably what would happen there. And the brother stood up and walked over to Frank after all the family had sat down and he presented him with a plaque. And on the plaque, it said, to the greatest son ever, Frank. And then it said, thanks for taking care of mom in her last days. They handed him that plaque and the story says that tears just started gushing from his eyes. And the brother said, I have one more thing for you. He handed him an envelope. He said, in that envelope are the signatures of me, your two brothers, and your sister, because we have agreed that you will get to live in that house until the day you die. And they said, as a matter of fact, no one can take that house from you as long as you're alive. Now, when you pass, our children will get it. But until then, that's your home. And what they did was they were able to cut some of the land around the farmhouse and sell that in order to, to, to fulfill their financial needs. But in the end, they did what was best for Frank. And the story goes on that the family was so much better off. Yes, they didn't get the money they'd wanted. Yes, those things didn't happen. But Frank was being taken care of. The family, the barriers that were dividing the family were torn down at that moment. And God was glorified. Well, what did they do? Did they capitalize on their liberty just because they could? Because they legally could have kicked Frank out. They, they legally had rights to that home. But just because they could didn't mean they should. And thank God they didn't. And in the same way in the Christian life, there are a lot of things that we can do because we can, because it's freedom, because it's a privilege, because it's a liberty. But just because we can does not mean we should. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to reiterate to the Corinthians here. In verse 25, he says this as he goes into a specific situation that was going on among the Corinthian Christians. He said in verse 25, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. So what this was is there was an idea that it was wrong to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols that somehow that meat would be unclean and therefore Christians should not eat it. Well, Paul is addressing that belief. He's saying you can eat everything that is sold in the meat market. Because what would happen is, is these idol worshipers, they would sacrifice animals on the altar of their idolatry or idolatrous gods. And then all the food would not be eaten by that uh, priest of that religion or whatever it may be. And the people would take the meat and they would take it to market and they would sell it to make money. So when you're walking through the meat market in that day, you would look at meat, look like good meat, good food to eat, and you weren't sure where it came from. It could have been sacrificed on the uh, altar of an idol. Maybe it wasn't. But what Paul is addressing here is he's saying, listen, you don't need to worry about that. All of it is permissible for you to eat. All of it is okay. Just because it was sacrificed on the altar of an idol does not mean that you should not eat it. All right? So then we go on down and it says this, Verse 26, he says, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Verse 27, if any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. In other words, if you go to an unbeliever's house who's an idol worshiper and they're to set food in front of you, 
You can eat it with a clean conscience. You don't need to ask them where it came from, he's saying. It is perfectly permissible for you to do that. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. So what this is saying is, is if you go to an unbeliever's home, maybe you and another Christian are invited and you sit down at that table to eat the food and the Christian that went with you, whether it's your brother or sister in Christ, elbows you as the meat's being served and says, did you know that this is meat that was sacrificed to an idol? In other words, that Christian has a problem with that because they're not under the conviction that it's right to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And you say, no, I didn't know that. What Paul is saying is, is because it is offensive to your brother or sister for you to eat that, you should not eat it. Did you hear what it said there in verse 28? But if someone says to you, this food, from a sacrifice, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience, don't eat it. All right, so in verse 29, I do not mean your own conscience, but the other persons. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? So what that's saying there is this. If it's going to offend your brother and sister for you to do that, you should not do it for conscience sake. However, you should not allow your conscience to be changed. In other words, if you have a belief in terms of your Christian freedom about a gray area that is not condoned or prohibited in scripture, you should not let the conviction of another Christian change your conviction because you've already worked that out in your own life and you're perfectly fine and, and well within your rights to hold that conviction. The reason that you would not eat the meat because it would offend your brother is for their own good. You would alter your behavior in that situation, but you would not alter your belief system or your conscience. Because here's what happens. When we allow people to press us about things that are not expressly forbidden or condoned in scripture, what we end up doing is we fall into legalism. We end up falling into a system of beliefs that were created by man, not by God. Now listen, there's a lot of things that we can do that's perfect, that we're perfectly free to do. And there's probably a lot of ideas within this own church. We believe, on the big, we believe the same on the big things. We believe that God is the creator of heavens and the earth. We believe that God is one, per, uh, one God who exists in three persons. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe that the word of God is absolute authority, morality, infallible truth. We believe the big things. We agree. But there are going to be some things that we may disagree on among brothers and sisters where we have different ideas or different views. And what we have to do in those situations is, instead of stirring up conflict with our brothers and sisters, we should, for their own sake and for their own good and for the building up of them, not do things in front of them that's gonna offend them. Not do those things that's gonna cause turmoil within the family of God. And this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about we need to be others focused in the household of God. Now, in this situation, it's, it's surprisingly enough here that when he talks about you not eating of the meat that was sacrificed to idols because your brother brings it to your attention, you probably are going to offend the lost person who is serving the food. Because if you go there with that Christian and that Christian says, don't eat it, it's sacrificed to idols. You say, I'm sorry, I can't eat that food. You offend the host. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying it's so important that we as brothers and sisters are in unity and do not offend each other in the areas that don't matter that it was actually worth it to offend the lost person in order to keep the unity between you 
and your brother or your sister. Now, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That Paul is really uh, grading this and showing priority in terms of who we should and should not offend and when we should and should not offend. So we're going down and he says this, for why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I gave thanks? So here's what he's saying is, he's saying, okay, so I'm sitting here at this dinner this lost person, this idol worshiper is cooking this meat that he had sacrificed to idols. My brother tells me that it was sacrificed to idols. And yet I say, well, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm gonna thank God for this food. This food looks really good. And, and I am gonna eat this food, by the way, because it's my liberty and I can just because I can. So uh, I'm gonna give thanks to God and, and you're just gonna have to kind of get over it, buddy. So then you eat, you tear that steak up or whatever it is that's set before you that was sacrificed to idols. Your brother's offended. Your brother's bothered by that and says, I can't believe you did that. I mean, that's wrong. I mean, there's no way you should have done that. What the Bible is saying here in verse 30, if I partake with thanksgiving, in other words, if I give thanks for this food, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? In other words, everything that I thanked God for that I ate is null and void now because I offended my brother. The Bible is saying it is better if you don't give thanks for the food and you don't eat it rather than to offend your brother or sister. That's some pretty heavy words for us today. And it's something that we need to consider as we think about the family of God and those we serve with. Because if our church is not right within these four walls, within this family, then there's no way that we're gonna be able to reach Candler, North Carolina. There's no way that we're gonna be able to lead lost people to Jesus if we're too busy and wrapped up in our own conflicts, if we're too busy and wrapped up in our own disagreements, in our own pride, in our own self-will. And Paul is saying, lay it to the side. Put it away from you. Quit offending your brothers and your sisters just because you can. Don't change your conscience. Don't change your beliefs. But quit offending people. Be aware of how you're coming across. Understand that people receive things differently. Understand that people have different ideas and different beliefs. And when we are sympathetic to that, and when we understand that, then we're a lot less likely to say, you know what, I'm doing it just because I can, and you can get over it. Well, who are we to say that? Who are we just, just because we can? That's not the heart of Christ. And that brings us to our second point. There's a twofold reason why we should not offend our brothers and sisters when it comes to situations that are not specifically condoned or prohibited in Scripture. Number one is the glory of God. In verse 31, he says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. John MacArthur says this, The purpose of using our liberty carefully and selflessly is to glorify God. Glorifying God can be done when we simply praise Him for who He is, we can also glorify God through our works of service for him. In other words, I've got these rights. As Paul said, these things are permissible for me. I have the liberty to do these things. But when I handle that privilege of this liberty and this freedom with care as to not offend my brothers and sisters and to not utilize that liberty when I know that I shouldn't utilize it, you know what that does? It brings glory to God. It honors God. It shows God that we are others focused. It shows God that we care about the unity of his church. And we care about the effectiveness of his church in a lost and a dying world. In the Old Testament, God had commanded King Saul to go to the Amalekites 
and completely annihilate them. Take the armies of Israel, go into their camps and completely destroy them. Men, women, children, and livestock. I don't want any of them left. Their sin has been crying out to me and they must be destroyed. Well, when Saul goes, they engage in the military conflict. Later on, Samuel, the prophet, comes in and he starts to hear cows lowing and he hears sheep and he hears goats. And then he finds out that Samuel didn't kill their king, King Agag. And he goes up to Saul and this is what he says. This is in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Hey, you know what? Just as sin is dishonoring to God, obedience is honoring to him. And can we all agree this morning that God is worthy of our praise? Hey, if God is saying in certain situations you need to give up your liberty for the good of your brothers and sisters, don't you think he's worthy to ask that? Don't you think he's so worthy that we ought to obey that? That we ought to honor him with that? Number one, there is no one greater than God. And we can all agree with that. Number two, God is transcendent, which means he exists outside of and above his creation. Number three, he's self-existent, which means that he needs nothing outside of himself in order to sustain his existence. And number four, he is eternally pre-existent, which means that no one created him because he has no beginning. Now, I can tell you right now, he's worthy of our glory and our honor and our praise. There is no one greater than God. And hey, you know what? I want to worship the greatest. I want to worship the one who's in charge. I want to worship the one who needs nothing, but he is fully self-existent and self-sustainable right there on his own. And then the second reason, that twofold purpose for why we should not offend our brothers and sisters is because of the salvation of mankind. Did you hear there in verse 32? Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, talk about the attitude of Christ. And this is what it says. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, now, this is God. This is Jesus Christ. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Hey, you know what? Jesus had every right to stay on his throne in glory to not step off his throne and intersect this world, to take on human flesh, to suffer and to die on a cross. He had every right to say, I'm not doing that. I'm God. But you know what? Just because he could does not mean he did. And I'm thankful that Jesus didn't. And here in Philippians, he's saying, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. We're talking about God laying aside all the benefits that he had on the throne in heaven and taking on human flesh and coming into a sinful, sad, dark world. And we complain because it offends our neighbor if we don't blow the trimmings out of the road after we mow the yard. 
We get mad because we go over to Aunt Polly's house and she wants me to wear a mask. We get mad because, you know, they just didn't say thank you in the way that I thought they should say thank you. And God himself stepped out of heaven for you and for me. How much more so? If we have this attitude of Christ, how much more so should we be cautious not to offend our brothers and sisters? Now, hear me very carefully. If, if someone believes that God is not one God who exists in three persons, I'm okay if we offend that person. I'm not going to intentionally offend them, but I'm going to stand on the word of God and say that, yes, indeed, God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But if someone doesn't want to mow their grass on Sunday, I'm not going to fight with them over that. That's, not, that's Christian liberty. Hey, you know what the Bible says? No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So what should we do in this? We should be peacemakers. And by creating peace, it means that we prevent conflicts from happening in the first place. Now, later on in this series, we're going to talk about the fact of when you get in a conflict, how the Bible teaches us to resolve that. But today we're talking about those preventative steps to where we never enter it to begin with. And it starts with not offending your brothers and sisters about situations that are not expressly forbidden or condoned in Scripture. Hey, guys, Pole Creek has got a great calling from God. God has given us a great name in our community. God has given us the opportunity to reach thousands of people in this community. Hey, let's make sure that we are loving each other and serving together so that we're strong enough when we go out and we lead a lost world to Jesus, that we can sustain them and disciple them and lead them to be mature Christians. Hey, this morning, this may be your first time in a church. This may be your first time at Pole Creek. Listen, I'm not naive to think that everyone here knows Jesus. I'm not gonna just assume that everyone in here has been saved. And I wanna give you the opportunity this morning that if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know this one that we're talking about, who gives us the power to be peacemakers, the one who gives us this power to love others more than ourselves, to this morning, you can meet him. And the Bible teaches us that if you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and you know that he took your place on the cross, you understand that you're a sinner, as the Bible teaches, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that if you'll trust in that Jesus, the one who died for you and rose again, by faith, based upon what he did for you, that you shall be saved. And this morning, I ask you to trust him. I ask you to say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that if I die today, that I would die without you. Would you save me based upon the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus? Today, I trust you. And the Bible says, based upon that faith, you will be saved. Let's pray.